some of these people, some of the churches, particularly on the east side, have been hosting cyclists on the Trans Am since its inception in 1976. So while we were on the tour in 2016, it had been 40 years of doing this. And you do this for 40 years, you don't see a single Black person in your mind. Black people don't do this. For me, I kind of felt like I was a very small part of it, but I did feel like I was kind of changing the narrative. Still trying to figure out if I'm the first, but I think I'm also really focused on making sure I'm not the last. Welcome to Dynamo Jenny. I'm your host, Jessica Zephyrs, with Adventure Cycling Association. In today's episode, we hear from people whose perspectives on athleticism and privilege have been shaped by their backgrounds and their love of adventure. Each of them lives in a body that traditionally isn't associated with adventure or athleticism. But these women are out there and getting after it anyway, and they're here to ensure that they're not the last. In 2016, Stephanie Pueyo cycled the entire Transamerica Trail, self-supported with her boyfriend Austin. She says that riding across the U.S. wasn't a goal she had ever set for herself. She mostly went because the timing was good, Austin wanted her to come, and because she's always up for an adventure. But as she pedaled her way across the country, it began to dawn on Stephanie that she might just be the first Black woman to ride this route self-supported. It's not that Black women don't ride bikes. They do. But Stephanie knows all too well that riding across the country is a very different type of privilege than riding in your neighborhood. Stephanie is a first-generation American whose parents came to Miami from the Dominican Republic. Her first language is Spanish, and she grew up in a culture that prides itself in community rather than American individualism. She says her family and upbringing are central to the way she navigates life. You know, I played sports for you know, a lot of my life. Uh, played volleyball and tennis and the track and you know I loved it but I think my fondest memory or memories I guess are actually of being a baseball sister so you know my family is Dominican so I don't know how much you know about Dominican culture but the question is never a matter of whether the boy in the family is going to play baseball it's typically you know are they starting at three years old or at four years old like that was definitely the case with my brother most of my memories kind of revolve around my brother playing baseball um that was very much centered in our lives i guess all the traveling that we did do be it in florida or to other states was almost always because you know he had some kind of tournament and you know like after school we would go to his practice and then on the weekends he would play so like that soaked up a lot of our time. Him playing baseball was definitely the focus of the family. Like I, the, the sports that I played were never, like still to this day, my, my dad has never ever seen me play a sport. So looking back, it just feels like those were some of the best times, moments, years of my life. I enjoyed the game. I enjoyed, you know, cheering the team on. And Honestly, it's like the really small, pretty insignificant things that that I feel like spark, you know, joyful memories between, you know, getting sunflower seeds and 
and the Gatorades and the hot dogs and, you know, running to the concession stand 10 times or playing catch with the other baseball sisters, which we would do all the time. Like, it was just fun. I think, you know, being exposed to that so early, it contributed to me wanting to be an athlete. My mom actually didn't let me play softball, unfortunately, (laughs) but generally I did love playing and watching sports since I was a kid. Um, So I was very kind of sports oriented. That in some ways, perhaps inadvertently, may have like set the tone for, you know, other pursuits later in life. (laughs) According to Stephanie, in her household, girls' sports just didn't have the same value. Sports for boys had potential. It could be his way to a better life if he played professionally. And the same wasn't for girls. Stephanie says that her mother preferred her to play what she thought of as feminine sports like tennis. But Stephanie had a competitive spirit that would define her life in ways she and her parents could never have imagined. When I was like in elementary school, I remember always wanting to play dodgeball, but I refused to play with the girls because I felt like they didn't like throw the ball hard enough or whatever. Like, I was just, apart from being sporty, I was also pretty competitive. I feel like I've always kind of carried an intrepid spirit. And it takes a lot for me to find something, like, absolutely forbidding. And I think I've just always wanted more. I've, I've always, like, coveted adventure. I certainly didn't see myself occupying some of the spaces that I do now or that I have before. But I've just always been kind of audacious in some ways. So most of my family just kind of thinks that I'm, I don't want to say crazy, (laughs) but I guess kind of fearless in a way. And this is even with little things. Like my mom thinks I'm like fearless because I'm willing to drive by myself from Miami to her house. And she lives in central Florida, like Orlando area. Like she thinks that, you know, I, you know, I must not be scared of anything if I'm willing to do that. (laughs) You know, and I would say not so much my brother, like my mom and others just kind of question it because it it doesn't make sense to them that any of the things I do would be enjoyable. I think that's another part of it. You know, it doesn't register to them that anyone would bike 80 miles for fun. You know, that that registers as torture to them. But I also think that, at least with my, my parents, I think that when you've had a hard life or you've had to do manual or, or factory labor, you know, to to subsist and to provide you know, as my as both my parents have, I think it's even more challenging to really understand why anyone would be attracted to certain activities or recreation that isn't, you know, just relaxing or being comfortable. Because in, in my parents' case, comfort has in many ways eluded them for most of their life. You know, for example, like camping. <laughs> camping <laughs> will always, you know, be unknown territory for them. You know, for them, it's like, You mean to tell me you're going to sleep in a bag on the floor. It could potentially be cold. And, you know, you have to be concerned with rodents and animals or bears. You know, you may not be able to shower. You have to use the bathroom outside. And you're doing this for fun. It's completely logical to them. And I understand, you know, those those conversations are typically humorous, you know, more than anything else when when I'm talking to them about those things. But. You know, and this also extends to most of my friends, most of my peers. They don't get it either. Having been raised in Miami and having that culture, you know, people in Miami avoid going outside. You know, it's typically, you know, miserably humid and 
if people in Miami are outside, it typically means they're at the beach relaxing, you know, and that's just, it's just wildly different cultures and, and perceptions of fun. Like type two fun is not fun <laughs> to them. So I, you know, I try to, but for the most part, I really understand and, and kind of respect that it's just not their thing. But, you know, it's an interesting timing because my brother was uh, in Arizona for something actually baseball related, but uh, he had a, a, a day off or some time off and, and he went on a hike and I was just so proud of him. That's just not what he does. That's not because I'm closest to my brother and I think he knows my personality the best. A part of it is like, cool, like look at my sister doing this thing. And again, there's a lot of things that I do that he may not necessarily care to do, but I do think there he feels motivated by it. So I joked with him, you know, that he's never going to get on my level with hiking. He's like, no, I'm never going to get to your expert level, but he still enjoyed it. And you know, he tried something new and he felt that, you know, the views when he got to the summit were, you know, it was really rewarding. It was gratifying for me to see that, especially when he did it on, you know, on his own because he wanted to rather than, you know, he came to visit me and I made him go on a hike, you know. I think my brother and I have in some ways drifted apart in terms of our interests, like as we've aged, but like being different, like in some ways also brings us closer like because I'm so interested in different things but I get to still share it with him. That's pretty gratifying too. Wanting a change of pace, Stephanie uprooted and moved to Denver, a place with recreational opportunities like she'd never had in Miami. But she says that the move didn't come without its complicated feelings of guilt, excitement, liberation, and privilege. You know, Miami is, you know, a big city, but in some ways I still felt stagnant in a way. And I think a part of it was I was repressing the extent to which I didn't want to go to law school, even though I didn't admit that to myself. But yeah, I felt bored with what Miami had to offer in some ways. And when I was an undergrad, after my junior year, I studied abroad in Peru. And that was the first time that I had ever hiked. Traveling in Peru was probably one of those most meaningful things I've ever done. And and I think that really kind of kicked things into gear. I think after that, that's when I just really started getting antsy and just feeling like, wow, the world is so much bigger than Miami. There's so many other things I could be doing. You know, Miami is and will always be home for me, but I I started feeling maybe less and less like I belong there at that point in my life. And Denver has certainly not disappointed in that regard, you know, in both good and not so great ways in, in terms of new. But I think in addition to that liberatory feeling, I also felt selfish. And a big one for me, I felt like individualistic. And, you know, that is, you know, that was and is still so, just so difficult for me to confront. You know, I'm, I'm American. I have, you know, lived in the U.S. my whole life. But American culture is not the type of culture that I was raised in. So, like, Hispanic folks, you know, and, and I don't want to paint them as a monolith, but we tend to be very family-oriented and very collectivist. And American culture is is wildly individualistic. I kind of felt that by moving here... Again, for no real reason, 
it wasn't for a job that I couldn't find anywhere else or because of some sort of emergency, you know, simply because I wanted to. And I felt like I was kind of abandoning not only my family, but essentially everything and everyone I've ever known and loved. So it just, it was just not characteristic of the way that we operate. Like all my family, most of which are immigrants, you know, left their own families and their countries, you know, behind, but they did that for, you know, better life and more opportunity, not because, you know, they, they thought mountains were pretty. I'm not suggesting I'm not like perfectly in my right and, you know, in my own right to move as I deem fit. It's just, it's a challenge for me because I never want like my family to feel like I want to be far from them or that what they gave me was somehow insufficient because, you know, that will never be the case. I just have different aspirations, I think. And in this case, aspirations that they just may not understand. <laughs> and I just kind of fear becoming an American. But by that, I mean, like, general, like, American culture. Like, that's just not me, you know. And I respect that folks, you know, have a different way of doing things. But I just, I thrive on community. I thrive on people. You know, I have a lot of peers that, you know, they talk to their parents like once like every two weeks or something or they may see them once a year and that's normal and they have like good relationships with their families not even that they're estranged like that's just normal to them so me telling them like my mom calls me every day <laughs> like they don't understand that and I get it yeah it's, it's just it's not me so it, in terms of sense of self I think that's something I'm still kind of wrestling with of like who I am and just realizing that I'm a hybrid is what I am. This complicated sense of guilt comes back to Stephanie again and again when she talks about outdoor recreation. You know, like kind of like I mentioned, my parents also don't know any other country other than the U.S. and DR. You know, I, I'm not necessarily well-traveled, but I've done my fair share of traveling. And pretty much every time I book a flight, it feels wrong. You know, it feels like irresponsible. But with recreation, I think that's just like another level of feeling guilty in a way. You know, my touring bike costs over a thousand dollars, you know, and I have two bikes. My partner has like three and a half bikes. You know, we have all this Patagonia stuff and, you know, our, our, our camping tent costs, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of dollars. It, it just, it feels insane in a way. And this is like baseline stuff for a lot of people you know, that are in the rec world. And and I'm not suggesting, of course, that you need to like dish out a certain amount of money to either own own a bike or, or go camping or whatever. But, you know, if you go to REI, for example, you're likely going to spend a pretty penny on pretty much anything in there. So I, I do think that certain recreational activities are cost prohibitive. And I think that that kind of speaks to that, that tension and privilege around travel and, and even bike travel. The thing about, you know, you can overspend in any activity, right? And I'm aware of that. But I think people in the sport tend to reinforce exclusivity. And I think that's kind of what gets me. You know, it's it's almost like a badge of honor, you know, to have a bike that weighs three ounces or, you know, their helmets are aerodynamic with whatever technology. Like, and again, it doesn't, this doesn't speak to every cyclist, but I feel like that's where the tension comes in too, because... You know, sure, again, folks can, can, can purchase cheaper gear or bikes, but that attitude is pretty pervasive and it, it's not welcoming. So it feels weird for me to now kind of be part of that, even though I'm a, 
you know, I'm of course not actively shutting people out, but I still recognize that it is kind of inherently tense to think about the, the privilege that I have that allows me to do something like that by choice, you know, and even even biking within the cities and seeing like people that are homeless on bikes, you know, carrying pretty much everything that they own on their back. Like we're both cyclists just the same, but it's different when I'm doing it, you know, for fun or for fitness and, you know, someone's doing it because it's all they have um, and it's their only means of transportation. Whereas I can just get in my car when it rains, but that person can't say the same. And I think a lot of shaming happens, at least like in the travel sphere, not so much cycling. You know, I think there's a lot of people that are condescending toward people that, you know, don't have passports or or don't spend their tax returns on on traveling. You know, they may spend it on other things like shoes or whatever. I, I just think that that's really like inane. And on the flip side, it, it's also just kind of aggravating the, the representation piece, because I think that people start to assume that like people of color and black people especially either don't travel or they don't enjoy it or you know, it's almost as if to suggest that like we aren't cultured, like as opposed to like realizing how unfortunately like race and poverty is conflated in this country, like how those opportunities don't exist equitably. But but there's also like a lot of layers to it, right? Because there is this, yes, you 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 don't see us as often because of these, you know, like institutional barriers, but also it doesn't mean that we don't do it. I think with the travel industry, for example, it doesn't really keep in mind, like, you know, how black folks, for example, like how we travel, you know, which tends to be in groups, it tends to really kind of center engagement with locals, you know, but black people are also more importantly, like, very wary of how they're perceived or received. And there's that heightened cautiousness, because, you know, anti-blackness and racism is a global issue. You know, that was very salient for me when I was on the bike tour. In the absence, well, in the absence of of having someone else bike with me, I probably wouldn't have done it. More importantly, like my partner being a white man was a big part of why I felt a little bit more comfortable. I mean, I didn't stop being black because he was white, but it was just more of that it would be just a little bit easier to navigate with him. I think a lot of people tend to ignore just kind of how pervasive that is and how like black people never forget they're black in any room they walk into. So when I am on a bike ride with a group ride, like yes, I'm just one of a hundred cyclists on this group ride, but I am very wary of the fact that I am a black person on this group ride. Always. And because that's not salient for non-Black people, like, they just don't think about it. Like, sometimes they just disregard it altogether, but sometimes it's really, like, it's just not something that they understand, which which makes sense. We all navigate the world very differently. But, you know, when I hear people talk about their travels, you know, and how nice people were to them, or, you know, that sort of thing, or they talk about how they saved up and, you know, quit their jobs to go live in a van, or to go live in the jungles of Thailand or whatever it is, you know, they seem to think that that's like some sort of sacrifice, you know, as opposed to an example of like unmistakable privilege. Like you, like in the sense of 
if someone is living in a van, that's obviously like less comfortable than someone living in an apartment. So they see it as like, oh, I, I made this sacrifice, you know, so I can live in, with frugal means and that kind of thing. But they, they don't realize that, like, that is still inherently a privilege compared to like the situations for a lot of people. And this idea that you have a choice is in itself. I, I, that's really, I think, the crux for me. It doesn't matter what you're doing or what you're doing. The idea that you have a choice and, and you can make those decisions for you rather than you have your circumstances decide for you, that's, that's I think, different. When she returned from the Trans Am tour, Stephanie decided that she wanted a space where she felt more at home and could do outdoor pursuits with people who looked like her. So she didn't wait for something to come to her. She started her own Denver chapter of Black Girls Do Bike. Then ultimately when I came back, particularly with, with the salience of, holy crap, am I the first Black woman to have done what I just did? Then I really started feeling like, I just had to, like, it was like my responsibility to start that. We started off in summer of 2017, but in terms of how I got started, generally in those years after Austin, my boyfriend showed me the Black Girls Do Bike page, I also started following and finding a lot of other pages, like Black Girls Run, um, Outdoor Afro, um, there's Black Girls Trek, I think there's a Black Girls Hike. You know, it felt like home to have these groups that were focused on, you know, people that look like me that wanted to do the same activities that I wanted to do. And I'm sure if you were to speak to a lot of these people, they'd probably refer to themselves as hybrids, too. Oftentimes, we, we tend to be the only ones that, you know, are black or brown in a group of white friends doing those sorts of activities. So to just have a group where I felt like, perhaps would be more understanding of certain things and of those like barriers, for example. Anyway, because I felt that way with those groups, many of which I didn't like actively join, but just knowing that they existed like, brought me comfort. So what I started doing was I created the Facebook page. You know, I reached out to the founder um, of Black Girls Do Bike, uh, Monica Garrison. And, you know, she didn't really request much. All she wants is for someone to essentially you know, have the Facebook, run the Facebook, and just lead a monthly ride. Quite literally it. That's kind of how we got to where we are now. I want to say we have at least maybe like 150 members on the page right now. And certainly everyone doesn't show up to every ride, but so, you know, monthly we go out on a ride together on the trails, and, you know, I always push for better and increased turnout. You know, I try to switch things around, you know, not do the same trail every month. Colorado is very homogenous and most cycling groups in general, wherever you are, are pretty homogenous. So I just kind of wanted to give that home to a lot of women that would perhaps, you know, either ride alone otherwise or or just have never been, you know, have never had the opportunity of cycling and talking about cycling with other black women. So, you know, it's been great. I've met so, so many people through it and it's a great bond that I think we've been able to cultivate. I'm just really happy about like the visibility 
that it brings. I just, I love when we're like, when there's like eight of us and we're just biking on the, on the trails. And I just feel like, you know, even if no one is like asking anything or seemingly surprised, I'm just like, yep, we're here. Thanks to Stephanie Pueyo, who is the leader of Black Girls Dude Bike Denver Chapter. She's a Perla Zumi ambassador, and she's still trying to find out whether she's the first Black woman to ride the Trans Am self-supported, or who that might be. We'd love to hear from any listeners who might have leads on that. Blonsky is not afraid of a good time. I was kind of a drunk Santa by the end of the race, uh, which helped with like the humiliation that I was feeling. And that might have been part of why, like, by about halfway through the course, I was just like, screw it. There's no way I'm going to even like make it through this. And I had already been lapped a couple times. A little bit of a redeeming quality. <laughs> In fact, she says it's one of the main goals of her advocacy to help people of all shapes, sizes, skills, and experience levels to see cycling as a source of fun and freedom, and to insist that that experience isn't off limits to anyone. I identify as a fat cyclist, but also as an adventure cyclist, um, as a commuter, as somebody who rides for fun, um, and somebody who's just out to get more people on bikes riding for fun or transportation, or really whatever works for them safely. I really see cycling as like really safe and fun and affordable means of transportation. Um, So trying to make that work for the most number of people as possible. In search of a good time, Marley entered her first cyclocross race in November of 2016. She put on a Santa costume and was escorted into the woods while her bike was hidden in a cornfield. To be clear, this was not some sort of strange hazing ritual. This was how each participant began the race, with a sprint to find their bike before they took off around the course. The rest, she says, was kind of a nightmare. So I should start off by saying, like, I am not a competitive person at all. And everybody was like, oh, my gosh, you'll love cyclocross. It's such a fun community and there's hand ups and everybody's just out there having such a good time. So I was like, oh, you know, that sounds fun. Get messy, get dirty. And everybody's cheering for you. But what they neglected to leave out was that, like, People at cyclocross are really, really competitive. I had kind of gone into it with these expectations that like, ah, it'll be fine if I'm like going at my own pace and just having a good time and I'm just riding my bike. I I guess I should admit there was definitely some uh, naiveness with this, especially with like with the race that I picked, but I went to single speed cyclocross worlds. Uh, Oh man, I feel like people listening to it are gonna be like, well, duh, it's the world championships. 
So I came out, I wore a Santa suit, um, like with bibs underneath it. It was right around, I think it was right after the election in like November 2016. Um, so there were lots of other folks in costume. I didn't feel weird about that because I like wasn't in a skin suit. I raced actually on my friend's single speed bike because I didn't have a single speed. But so that was cool. It's like this beautiful little cross bike. Um, so like with that, I felt like I belonged. Other than that, it was like a complete disaster. I'm not sure that anybody else watching would know that because I think it looked like I was having fun, but inside I was just like dying. They started out with a Le Monde style start. So they took us all into the woods and then they hid our bikes in this cornfield. So we started out the race and had to run. And so by the time we even got on our bikes, I was like, oh my God, I freaking hate this. And then like, I was really, really trying my hardest because even though I'm not competitive, I saw that everybody else was like actually trying to go fast. And I was like, oh God, this is gonna be really embarrassing if I'm just like at the way back of the pack, just like, do, 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 this is fun. It was only like a 45 minute, I think it was a 45 minute or an hour long race, but I didn't even make it around the, the track or the course one time. I mean, part of that was because the, the mud was like super thick, like peanut butter, but also it was just really, really, really incredibly hard. Um, and so I just like, I felt really defeated internally. I felt really embarrassed because I felt like I was just so much slower than everybody else. I felt like I had to put on this front that I was still having this good time, even though like inside I was like, this is the most miserable thing I've ever done. Sure, the race was hard, but what was harder than the course itself was this overwhelming feeling that her intentions were being misunderstood. And that misunderstanding seemed to be circling back to the same detail, her body size. You know, people always assume that I'm riding a bike to lose weight or that I'm always doing it as part of like a fitness challenge or um, I have some end goal in mind. Like, you know, for example, part of the cyclocross thing, they were all like, oh, how's your season been going? Have you been getting faster? And then I felt kind of silly admitting like, no, it's my first race. I'm just out here to have a good time. You could never just be a fat person riding a bike for fun. There always has to be some bigger goal in mind. Like I have to be wanting to lose weight, I think is the bigger expectation put on people in, in larger bodies. Marley says that she runs into a lot of misconceptions about herself from others while she's out riding. And frankly, they can be pretty archaic and just plain mean spirited. Um, I think another one is also that I'm a novice or a beginner, um, which I want to be very clear. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Like I welcome everybody on a bicycle and like if you want to start riding bikes and you don't know where to start get in touch let's do it um i will go for a bike ride with you but i'm definitely not a beginner um and just because i'm a big person on a bike i've been doing it a long time so i think that's one of the expectations is like i don't know what i'm doing or i'm fat so i must have never done this before so when wtf bike explorers held their first summit marley recognized the need for a discussion on body size inclusivity so I went as an attendee and a volunteer and had the opportunity. They had a couple of sessions where it was like, hey, what else do we want to talk about as a group and as a community? And um, it was kind of like a free programming. And so I suggested the idea of talking about biking while fat. Um, and it kind of morphed into a conversation of like, you know, biking with um, long-term health conditions or just kind of not being your typical able-bodied cyclist. Part of that had grown out of frustration from attending some of the sessions. There was so much discussion at the sessions about like inclusivity 
and diversity, but I still felt like there was this missing chunk. And that was talking about size diversity. You know, for example, people were talking about like, well, how do you prevent chafing on long rides or like what kind of underwear do you wear? And there was all this great discussion. And then I would raise my hand and be like, cool, what size do those wool underwear go up to? And they would just be like blank stares. And there was like this total lack of um, awareness and acknowledgement that people exist above a size large or extra large. And I realized I kind of had this duty or obligation to both educate and advocate because there, there were other folks in the room who also live in larger bodies. And this was a really cool opportunity to start bringing together our experiences, um, but also um, learning from each other. The second year when Kaylee and I actually submitted it as a presentation is when it became more formalized. The first discussion at the summit led her to Kaylee. So it's kind of funny because Kaylee and I had never met in person until the summit. We actually met on Instagram. She had won, um, Lael Wilcox was doing this uh, bike across Alaska scholarship and Kaylee won it with her friend. And I remember following her on Instagram and just fangirling and being like, oh my God, this like rad fat babe is biking across Alaska. Like I want to be friends with her. Um, <laughs> so I started following her and turns out she was doing the same thing to me. Uh <laughs> I'm Kaylee Kornhauser. I was so excited to see that Marley Blonsky had followed me. She's the only other person I had ever heard about that was talking about issues of body size, inclusivity, and cycling. And I had just started to talk about these issues uh, when I applied for the scholarship to ride across Alaska. I was one of the first times that I had ever publicly called myself fat in writing, uh, was in that application. One thing I like that A.D. Bryant from SNL and the show Shrill always says is, um, or what would happen if I took all the time that I was hating my body and spent it doing something else? And that's, I'm like, butchering that quote but um and I think it's really true like the moment that I stopped wishing my body was different and that's not something that I've like completely done right I'm like still working on that every day but the amount of time and energy that I have that I spent trying to change myself is now going towards all of this other work that just has given me so much more back Remember that scholarship Marley mentioned? Kaylee has a pretty distinct memory of that experience. So part of the the scholarship that we received was um, some sponsorships through some clothing companies, uh, which was really exciting. Um, you know, I'm on a grad student budget, so I don't have like all you know the fanciest latest gear, and so it was a chance to get some of that. And one of the clothing companies that was going to be providing our rain gear is a, you know, I won't name them by names. It's it's not about like calling out a specific company, but um, I knew right away that none of the women's sizes would fit me. Uh, but I later learned that none of the men's size rain jackets would zip up either. And so I had found this stretchy rain jacket that they offered uh, that ended up being uh, not waterproof at all. It was much more like a windbreaker. Um, and it was truly the only jacket that I could find at the time that would zip up. I couldn't, 
I looked for other brands as well, but I needed something that could pack up really small because it needed to go into my bikepacking bags when I wasn't wearing it. And so I couldn't wear like a poncho uh, that a bike tourer might bring because they might have a, you know, a bigger bike bag. I needed something that was going to be able to pack up really small. And this was the only thing I could find. And so I headed to Alaska knowing pretty full well that I basically didn't have a raincoat in a place that we had been warned that we really needed to have like basically ski level waterproof gear. And we, my friend did have that gear. I did not. And by the first day, the first day we rode, it was, it was pouring rain and it was really clear that this rain jacket was not a rain jacket and wasn't going to work. But I was up in Alaska. Alaska is not an easy place to find clothes, even if you are in a smaller body. And so I just dealt with it and I rode a thousand mile bike ride with basically a windbreaker, um, which was cold and wet. And at times it was like around freezing and raining and I was feeling pretty hypothermic. <laughs> so <laughs> that was kind of a, a big bummer. And, uh, and honestly, I have had a really hard time finding a rain jacket since then. The problem hasn't gone away. Marley and Kaylee have since become an indomitable force for change. They've systematically pointed out the ways in which the cycling industry, whether it be clothing, frame builds, group rides, or club rides, has historically done its best to exclude and discount people in larger bodies. I think just the media representation, and I kind of hate starting out with that that one because it's like, oh, you know, I don't see representations of myself in the media. That shouldn't stop me from doing it, but it really does. And I think, you know, people don't see themselves doing it, so they don't picture themselves on a bicycle um, or even just like out recreating. I think the two other big ones is like finding a bike that fits properly, especially especially if you are like uh, a bigger fat um, and making sure that you feel safe riding it um, just because there's not a lot of information out there about that. And sometimes trying to find the information um, about safe weight limits and whatnot can be difficult. And then finally clothing. I struggle with this a lot because I'm a really big advocate for riding and what feels comfortable to you. Um, but like for example, yesterday on my bike commute, it was rainy and windy and really gross. And I was just having a lot of jealousy of like the smaller riders around me and they're like perfectly sleek little rain jackets that were like purposely designed for cycling in the rain. And I was wearing like a, I don't know, long sleeve shirt with a vest and then I had a poncho on, which I love my rain poncho, but in the wind, it becomes like a sailboat. And I just have never found a raincoat that really fits me and like covers my butt, like all the cute little raincoats that everybody else has. I think that one of the more harmful statements that continues to be perpetuated is that people in larger bodies are inherently unhealthy and that they deserve that unhealthiness because they cause their body to be the way that it is. By far and away, comments about health for people in larger bodies are the things I see most frequently. So often people will say, why would this magazine promote, you know, fat people biking? They're promoting an unhealthy lifestyle, which is... I think a bit ironic because uh, <laughs> the magazine maybe is promoting 
people bicycling, which is not unhealthy. Um, <laughs> and it just happens to be that the person riding the bike is fat. People often feign concern about fat people's health or people in larger bodies' health. And I think we don't have to go far to think about the fact that we don't feign that same concern for other groups of people that might be predisposed to health. You probably have rarely heard someone uh, voice concern about thin people being predisposed to arthritis or osteoporosis. And I think the reason that we've considered it socially acceptable to say that to people in larger bodies is because we think that people in larger bodies are responsible for the way that their body is and that their body is negative by being larger. I think there's a lot of work to do. I think I have my own internal work to do about that. But I do think that those comments, while they seem like they're comments that are concerned with someone else's health, are actually coming from a place of fat phobia. And so uh, I do want to tell, you know, to people that are willing to listen, I want to ask people to reconsider those types of comments um, and think about the harm that they're doing. Marley and Kaylee were invited to present at the National Bike Summit in 2020, which was canceled due to COVID-19. However, they decided to provide the community with two virtual versions of their workshop. Really didn't expect this response from people, um, but it's resonating in a way that uh, is very surprising and welcome. We really hope that people will start like hosting their own rides and workshops too. Um, and so we're going to be partnering with some of the groups that do body size inclusivity in other types of outdoor rec and hiking specifically and partner with them to hopefully build off of the national networks that they've already built. The work will start transitioning away from just Marley and I towards there's so many amazing people doing work like this all over the place and we want to really capitalize on the awesome network that's out there. Many thanks to both Marley and Kaylee. Both can be found on Instagram at Marley Blonsky and at Kornhauser Sauce. Dynamo Jenny is a project of Adventure Cycling Association. It's hosted by me, Jessica Zephyrs, produced by Becca Zook and Jessica Zephyrs, a.k.a. The Z-Team. And Becca Zook also edits the show. Special thanks to Alex Strickland. Stay away from the berms, maybe, this year. Music from this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. Daniel Mergan made original art for this episode. You can see it and so much more on our website, adventurecycling.org podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please recommend us to a friend or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. And hey, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>